Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Everson from Villanova University, and welcome to the Big East Rewind. The Big East Rewind came about when Sonny Sparrow and I from Syracuse University were on a recruiting trip and became friends, and we've been friends ever since. And we had a bond that has developed over playing in the very tough Big East Conference. The Big East Rewind is all about Big East basketball, old school style with the battles and stories that came about during our time playing in the Big East. From the perspective of the media, coaches, former players, and even officials. So we hope you enjoy the Big East Rewind. On today's episode of the Big East Rewind, we've got a special guest in Charles Smith from Bridgeport, Connecticut, to the Big East Player of the Year in 1988 with the Pittsburgh Panthers. And to the Clippers, to the Knicks, and to life after basketball. It is one of the deepest conversations we've ever had, and it took a lot of thinking on our part, and I think it was very rewarding. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the Big East Rewind. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Big East Rewind. I'm your host, Chuck Everson, and as always, my point guard, my co-host, the great Sonny Sparrow from Syracuse University. How are you, Sonny? I'm well, Chuck. Looking forward to the show today. This yeah, we're going to have a good one. Yeah, legend. we have a Big East yeah. legend with us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, another another big, Sonny. I hate to keep doing that to you. Killing but, me. You know, Killing me with these No bigs, guards. Man. No guards. I bring all the big guys mm -hmm. in. So. You, this guy, Charles, guy, you, guys, you guys got a little click going, you guys. I'm telling you, man. That, well, you, that's well, it. I think, Chuck, you were scraping at the bottom of the barrel you're talking about bringing bigs on and <laughs> legends and all that uh yeah, well i, I oh, must have, i must have been the last choice man you're struggling <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so joining us today is the 1988 big east player of the year uh nba player and now entrepreneur the great charles smith from pittsburgh university how are you charles Chuck, good to see you. Sonny, good to see you. I'm doing you well. You know, it, I think the last time that we saw each other was the very last time I played pickup basketball at the Garden, and you coached against me. That's right. Absolutely right. And the first thing you say, I jack up an air ball, and the first thing you said was, some things never change, Chuck. What's going on? <laughs> we were, <laughs> then I ran off about you? five in a row, Sonny. You know, <laughs> he was talking trash, coaching against you. You and That's Troy right. I remember coached that. against uh, John Starks. Yeah, and John I remember a, that. I got invited to go down there with Budweiser, and that was – I figured I left that game with no bumps, bruises, sprains. I just put my shoes on the Knicks logo and walked off and said, that's a good place to end it. That's it. So Chuck, I understand. And I understand clearly. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. So, so talk to us, Charles, you, you're out of Bridgeport. You're coming out of Bridgeport in high school. What made you decide on the Pitt Panthers and how did that recruitment go for you? Well, um, uh, it's a funny story because I grew up, with family members living in Maryland. Mm -hmm. So every summer I went to Maryland and I played ball at Maryland at College Park. Um, I knew the Maryland team, family there. I wasn't going anywhere but to Maryland. I, I, didn't, no, I didn't even need to be recruited. I was going to Maryland. And um, well, I got a call right before my visit from Coach Sherman Dillard. And he says, you know, Charles, you know, 
you're going to be a, a great player, uh, but we don't have any more scholarships. We were forced to sign a hometown hero, Derek Lewis, and we don't have any scholarships left. And uh, we're sorry, um, but you're going to be a great player and have a great career. And, and uh, we just don't have any scholarships left. I was gutted. Wow. I was gutted. And then Dean Smith called and others called. I was like, I'm going Big East. So that's how I ended up on the Big East track. And then um, it came down to you, uh, Villanova and Pitt. Uh, I wasn't going to UConn because, you know, UConn today is not the UConn when I was coming up. You know, it was yeah. totally different. The little 5,000-seat bubble on campus, and it just wasn't – they still had haystacks on campus. <laughs> that wasn't what I was looking for. Pitt was a city school. I took the visit to Villanova. Uh, Veltra Dawson was recruiting me hard because we were at Five Star together and we became very good friends. Right. So he ended up talking to Raleigh about me and I talked to Raleigh and he ended up signing there and like, are you coming? I said, well, let me take a visit. I took a visit. Connected with uh, all the players there, had a nice visit, small school. Uh, it just wasn't quite where I came from and what I was looking for, but mm -hmm. great team. And then I chose Pitt because it was a city campus. Um, it made me feel at home just being around campus. And it gave me an opportunity to go in and with all the stuff that they sold me on, you're going to do this, you can do that whatever. I still wanted to go and help build the program. And um, I chose Pitt. Now, Chuck, yeah. Chuck, your freshman year was 84, right? Yes. Yeah. Because I, I remember when Pitt joined the Big East, I remember at Syracuse, it was one of the happiest days of my career because Syracuse was going to talk to join the football conference that Penn State and Pitt and Syracuse were going to form. So when that all happened, it was great. I think, though, when you came in, they had good players, and now they had a great one. So I think it really – to me, it really established Pitt as a, as a serious force to be reckoned with going forward. To me, Yeah, so. well, you know, it was good. You know, we had a – you know, Demetrius Gore, rest his soul, man, he yes. passed away. Um, mm -hmm. That was my guy. Um, you know, with Demetrius – we have Rich Kerrigan and Junie Lewis mm -hmm. uh, who came in. And then we had a, um, we recruited Jerome afterwards. Yep. But the, the key person that got away from us uh, who was ready to sign was Rod Strickland. Um, he just ended up going to DePaul and Rod and I grew up together. Um, I spent the night at his house in New York. He spent the night at my house in Connecticut. Uh, and we knew we were going to school together, but that was a tough one. But Pitt, the campus, um, yeah, I just fell in love with it. Couldn't ask for anything else. Such a great school and campus. How so much, I mean, I'm sorry, Sonny. Go ahead. No, go ahead. So Pittsburgh, though, had a reputation for being a football school first. That didn't deter you, obviously. You know, talk about what that was like playing second fiddle, the basketball team I'm talking about versus the football team on campus. Well, that's what the recruiting pitch was. 
you can help come and build a program. Uh, you know, they said they had, you know, money behind the program. They just need a team uh, to support. And, you know, like anything else, basketball is a business. You show improvement in the organization, you're going to put money behind it and keep it going. And, and that's what happened. Um, but it was amazing. Um, you had a stadium with 80,000 plus packed for a football game. I got a chance to see some amazing football with a great class and running back Ironhead Haywood that he passed away also, rest his soul. Um, and I, I, had a, I had a great time. Um, and we literally took our time and tried to build the program. Now, when you came in, Coach Chipman was your head coach. Right. Uh, talk, and who, who was the assistant coach that recruited you? What, what did you say his name was? Well, it's uh, J.F., Reggie Walford, and uh, John Calipari were our assistant coaches. Okay. Yeah. Legendary coaches right there. I so, didn't realize Cal was on your staff there. Yeah. How, how, yes. did, how did your uh, relationship go with Coach Chipman? Well, we had a good relationship. Um, um, you know, I got a chance to really meet his family. Uh, he was a great recruiter. Uh, Coach Chipman was very compassionate. Um, he had empathy. Uh, he wasn't a screamer. I mean, he got hot at times, but he was a good coach. He, uh, he knew his X's and O's, and uh, I enjoyed playing under him. He built a heck of a program, and it looks like, you know, it was very, you know, methodical, like the, the guys that he brought in and, and the system that he was playing. And then when he started together, some of the bigger fellas, you know, when Keith Armstrong and, and some of those guys came in, it really helped solidify what he was doing, you know. Right, right. And he also – but he also sold me that I'll play power forward and small forward because I, I went into high school at 5'10 and left at 6'9. So I wow. can always dribble the ball. And uh, that didn't work. As soon as the season started, I was a center. So he so told much. Andre the same thing. Andre yeah. was the same thing. He you told Andre three. the same thing. Yeah. He's playing yeah. Exactly. five. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Wow. Yep. And then and then Dre wound up growing two inches at, coming into school, and he he wound up in the post. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's interesting. Those those days, there was a lot of battles, man. And and that Fitzgerald Fieldhouse was one of the toughest places that we had to play on, on the road. I mean, besides the fact that you whooped our tails in, uh, in 85 before we went on our run, um, that place, I mean, it, it, I was telling these, the other guys when we were talking to them that it was like play, having a wood floor on top of asphalt. It was like wooden asphalt. There was no give to that floor at all. It would beat you up and stuff in there. Talk about the having that home, home court advantage at Fitzgerald. Huge advantage. I hated that place. Well, the fact that, the seats went all the way to the floor. Yep. Um, uh, so the students were literally on top of you. Um, you. You dive for a loose ball. There's only maybe about seven feet between the court and the students. Mm -hmm. uh, they were rowdy. They were loud. Um, you know, we sat maybe 7,600, uh, something around that size we might push it uh to 800 when they put more seats in for bigger uh tv games 
but everybody just got loud. The ceiling was low. So it was, yeah, you know, it it, yeah, you, the sound was just crazy. I mean, we, we just, the fans, once they got into it, they were like a six man for real. Yeah. I, oh, I, yeah. I've talked about it before. The, the, the walk from the court, to getting to your locker room was like walking the death row. I mean, <laughs> you're like right down the middle and there was, you know, anger and noise on either side. And it was mm-hmm. not a friendly place as an opponent. You know, I think we had maybe yeah. seven Syracuse fans there. So not, a, not a fun <laughs> place to play. There, there were certain teams, Charles, that we played in the arenas like that. In other words, when, when Dave Gavitt and Trangisi try to move everything to the bigger arenas, right. Like the spectrum and, you know, Sonny had the dome on campus doesn't get any bigger than that, but we played, we played in an arena like that for a while. And I think most of the games that we played with you guys uh, occurred at the, uh, at the cat house on our court when we had a palestra. Yeah. And the palestra. Yep. Yeah. The palestra was kind of like the middle ground we had, we had an on-campus place they called the Cat House where it was like Fitzgerald in that if you stepped on somebody's foot, that's how you knew you were out of bounds. You know, yeah, the state we, uh, was on one side, you know. Yeah, we didn't play there until uh, after my freshman year. Um, yeah. yeah, or maybe my first two years, but we always played at the Palestra. The time we played at what you call the Cat House was – uh, Mark Polanski, Doug West, and they had a little guard from Jersey. Uh, don't Kenny remember Wilson. his name. Kenny Wilson. Yes. Yeah. So that that team we played at on campus, and that was a tough place to play as well. Yeah, yeah. They they built that was I think that game might have been at the Pavilion. That's the year that the the new place was built. And uh, mm, okay, that was. So what that what, was what are some of your memories on some opponents and places that you played? Talk a little bit about anything you can remember. I know for us, we did not like to play in the Cap Center. We did not like to play in the Palestra, and we did not like to play in the Pitt Fieldhouse. So, so <laughs> um, share, share some of your memories. Well, let's talk about Villanova first. Um, <laughs> uh, we um, we always felt that we matched up well because you know Ed was you know six ten six eleven I was six ten um, we just had a nice balance um, with uh, Villanova but Raleigh was such a a great coach uh, he made adjustments I don't know and I would love to know this. It was almost like he made adjustments on the fly while you guys were on the court, not not even giving a timeout. Um, yeah. But when he made those adjustments, he did it at the right time. And we were like, when did that happen? They weren't doing that. There was no timeout. They just changed up. And we knew the plays. But that was always something that we always knew as a team. You know, when it got tight down the stretch, look for the adjustment. And we couldn't get it because uh, – we realized too late. It was almost like he was like the, like Harold might be running down the floor with the ball and he'll tell him he'll pull it out and just do something else. Yeah. Because he was reading what we were doing consistently on defense, but he was a great yeah. coach. Um, he was, he was a master of that. And what, what he did too, Charles, what some of the things you're referring to is we played multiple defenses. We could have played three different defenses in one possession. Uh, you know, in the second pass, we go to a two, three and then come back out. To, and morph into a one three one, then go to man, and 
you know, he would, he would come up with these hand signals on the sideline and we would know that, okay, on the third pass, we're going to go to this or the second pass will go to this. And, you know, so there was multiple defenses being played. So nobody really knew what offense to run because you didn't know if we were in a man or a zone, you know? Yeah. And I remember Gary McClain was very active up top, nonstop. Oh yeah. Mr. Mr. Energy. Yep. So uh, I remember that. And then, um, you know, at the time, Georgetown was, you know, one, two, three in the country. Yep. Uh, my freshman year, they still had Patrick. Um, I remember getting ready to play against them at the Civic Arena my freshman year. And I didn't, I didn't deal with the scouting report. I didn't pay attention to, I didn't pay a lot of attention to what coach was saying about them. I didn't want to know. I felt for that game, I just need to focus on me and uh, just play my game the best way that I could. I didn't get caught up in the Hoya paranoia, but I did get caught up in it when we went to the garden for the, uh, for the biggest tournament. How could yeah. you not? The fans just reminded you, but uh, yeah, that was a, uh, that was a different type of game for me uh, out of my years at Pitt because you know, that was one of those things where ignorance was bliss. You know, I, I didn't want to know anything. Um, hated eight oranges being thrown at us. I'm glad they stopped it. But those oranges being thrown in Syracuse, hitting the floor, splashing. Uh, I can remember Jerome Lane, uh, an orange came really close to him. And he looked up in the stands and I said, he said, I think I know who did it. I'm like, what are you going to do? You're going to go way up there, you know? Uh, but Take you five minutes to get up there. I know, man. That was uh, – and it got loud in Syracuse as well. Um, the other place I didn't like playing was Boston College and their little their little gym. Yeah. Their yeah. little gym was similar to ours. Um, and, yeah, um, you know, that was a tough place to play. They still have Michael Adams and – my freshman year, uh, the alumni hall at St. John's. Chris is a senior year, my freshman year. Oh, forget it. I mean, you go in there and play. Those guys had a, they just had it. It was tough to beat them. Did you guys beat them in alumni hall? St. John's? We, we, we beat them one time and it was, a, it was a weird game because, um, we ran off the court. We thought we won the game and a referee had blown the whistle and Winnington, had to take a one and one. We were up by one. Oh, we were up mm. by two. We were up by two. Bill made the first and missed the second, and we wound up winning the game. But that was the only time we beat them. They had our number, pretty much. We was had that their, time. That game was at their, their place. That, that game was at their place on campus. Yeah, and Not, and uh, we had we a tough them. time with Walter and with Chris. Mm -hmm. We didn't match up well with them. You know, my junior year we beat them at Alumni Hall. Pearl's freshman year. Um, and I remember it vividly because Pearl gave it up to Greg Monroe in the corner and he hit a tough shot was a game winning shot. One of the few game winning shots I think we ever hit other than the other one that Pearl hit against BC, but that one Greg hit and we just ran off the court as fast as we could. That was, that was, a, that was a hostile environment to play. In. I would much rather play in the garden against them than play at alumni arena. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the, uh, those are the uh, arenas and halls and gyms that we played in that I have uh, 
fond memories of good competition. Yeah. And, oh. and you know, Gavitt made those changes to go to the big arenas to take the, the conference to the next level. And, and we right. could, everybody understood that, but you know, I, you know, the battles were really in those arenas and it's, you know, you're, you're part of a fortunate group as the three of us are that we're able to play in those types of places for right. as many years as we did, you know? Okay. Yeah. Was, yeah. Was, all, go ahead. No, I was just saying all our big games were at the Civic Arena downtown. Now, Seton Hall was starting to come on and PJ was on and he talked about Mark Bryant being the catalyst to them actually becoming good. Now, yes. you matched up with Mark Bryant probably many a nights. How, yes. how, was, how was that matchup? Because they were coming out of the cellar and they were on a fast track. They started to win and win big. So how was that? Either, either they had our number or PJ had our number, we couldn't beat them. I mean, we, we, we beat them my senior night at Pitt, but they were tough to beat. You know, PJ kept the ball out of my hands. Soon as the guard got it on the wing, uh, their guard up top would play midway mm -hmm. between me and the foul line. He just mm -hmm. sink midway. And soon as the ball was in flight, double team was there. Seton Hall was some of the lowest scoring games I played in my career and out of all the Big East teams. Um, it was tough for me to play against Seton Hall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because like I said, they were coming along and PJ talked about it. And I, I was like, yeah, it coincided right around your same time because you were player of the year in 88, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then, that, and then the following year was your Seton Hall's in the championship. Right. Yeah, that's right oh. in their right's right in their wheelhouse when they were getting good. Yeah. So you so you're in the Big East, right? And and the Big East now has a national champion in 84. They have a national champion in 85. Syracuse is in the final in 87. You know, it, it just it, the, the league is going. What were some of your what were some of the discussions in Pitt just about being in the Big East? Because for us, like I said, it was a great moment when Pitt joined. But talk about just the Big East connection now that you guys are starting to develop. Well, my freshman year, you know, don't forget we had three Big East teams in the Final Four. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. And Boston College almost made it. It would have been four. Yep. Um, that was a talk for us freshman year, knowing that we're playing in the most competitive conference in the country. Mm -hmm. It wasn't ACC. It was the Big East. The Big East was it. And I didn't find out. I started playing with the Knicks. Um, I forgot Joel's last name that worked at the Garden, but he said to this day when I was playing there, the Big East tournament ticket was the hottest ticket in Madison Square Garden history. Yeah. It was the hottest ticket. He, he, he always said that. And uh, Saturday games? Forget it. Yeah. And then when you think about it, man. You it was a it was always a sellout. You couldn't get a ticket for the last four teams playing. You just couldn't get one. Um, mm -hmm. So he always said that. So the Big East was not even on the rise. It arrived during right. that Final Four, mm -hmm. and and it forced me and our team to start working out during the summer and taking it a bit more serious. Yeah. because every night you're going to play against some good competition. And that's what we want. Yep. Go yeah. Ahead, it, 
it, it was it was a wild time for all of us back then. That's for sure. I mean, now talk about some memories you have of the Big East tournament and how electric it was uh, when you stepped on the court in the garden, whether you were playing on day one or, or the last day. I mean, there was a buzz. You, you had mentioned it about it being a hot ticket. Um, talk about you know, some of your memories of playing in the Big East tournament at the garden. Now, obviously, you got a lot of memories for playing at the garden, for playing with the Knicks so many years. But talk about the Big East ones. Yeah, it was, um, you know, and I, what I remember about the Big East is experience mattered. Um, being a freshman playing in the Big East tournament, um, it can be either overwhelming or your energy and your excitement could be uh, too high going into the game. Um, and then you're just running around doing any and everything, you know. Um, so experience matters. Um, coaches' experience matter because he can talk to you about what to expect. There's nothing like the Big East tournament at Madison Square Garden. There was nothing like it. Um, the crowds were always packed and electric because it was that Northeast Corridor. Yeah. People can drive to go to New York. There's a zillion hotels. Everybody has a place to stay. Um, and you can follow your team. So it was electric. You know, I don't, I, you know, people use a lot of adjectives for playing in the uh, garden during the Big East tournament. There was a buzz. Um, you can just, when all the fans in the garden are just talking, they can be talking at a low tone, but collectively it creates a buzz and you can hear this, this tone going out as soon as you come out of the locker room. Uh, and then with the music and everything, it, it's a, it was a, it was exciting. Um, really exciting. I, I loved it. There's, there was nothing like it. Now you talk about the hotels, you know, Georgetown probably stayed in the Adirondacks, right? You know, that's probably where they stayed. <laughs> yeah. They in Jersey. <laughs> That's crazy. And we, we know what we learned, Charles. You know, here's the funny thing was as we're talking to different guys from different teams like yourself and the Georgetown guys, we've had like six Georgetown guys on now. Oh, okay. What was amazing was they went to the Big East in a school bus, in a yellow school bus. Can you imagine Patrick at 7-1 folding himself up into a and having to drive two hours from wherever – wherever the heck they were staying. I mean, they weren't anywhere near the city, you know, in a yellow school bus and then coming out and playing the way he did. I mean, it was just un unbelievable. So um, that's, uh, that's, that's, I don't know how that happened, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was a legitimate tactic of, of, of John Thompson to make them hungry. That's yep. right. Oh yeah. So now when, so, when you finish your career, you, you went very high in the NBA draft. You went number three, right? Yep. To, to the Clippers. The right. Sixers, and then got traded, right? Right. You right. almost went back. You almost wound up in Philly anyway, right? Yeah. Let me tell you how ignorant I was. Um, <laughs> so I get drafted by Philly. I knew I was going to the Sixers, so I never put the hat on. And I knew that the trade was coming up. I literally went to the phone on the floor, and I was talking to Elgin Baylor, and I literally asked him, "Can you leave me?" Can this, is there any way we can, you know, redact this, you know, trade 
and let me stay in Philly. I literally asked him that. <laughs> and he was like, uh, no, we're not going to do that. You'll enjoy your experience here. We're happy to have you, blah, blah, blah. And when I thought about it, I said, I couldn't believe I asked him that. That's how, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know anything. But, That's a uh, great story. <laughs> That's great. Now, now you get to the Clippers now. Were you playing with, with Reggie Williams and with, with Press? Were you playing with those guys? Like a little well, big community? Press was in Sacramento. Press was in Sacramento. 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 Yeah. Okay, excuse me. Uh, but, yeah, I played with Reggie Miller. I mean, Reggie uh, Williams. Um, yeah, we got to know each other. We're still friends today. We still talk. Good guy. Yeah, he was yeah. a yeah. He wound up being a great guy. How so does how, it? How, I'm how was sorry, your experience son. then? How was your experience with the Clippers then? Oh, uh, my experience with the Clippers was a little different. Um, you know, we lost quite a bit, a and I didn't know how to handle it. I literally, and I'm, I'm. This is how, you know, youthful in your mind can be. I actually thought. If I played better and gave it a harder effort each night, we would win. I, I literally thought that. And we would continuously lose. And I didn't even know how to deal with it. Um, you know, I averaged like 20 my first year, 21 my second year. But I didn't know how to deal with losing. And there's this thing called, and, you know, everybody talks about mental health today. There's this thing called, um, uh, alopecia areata, where you're uh, under so much stress, your hair falls out. And uh, I can remember in my apartment, LA, I'm brushing my hair and then boom, hair falls out. And I got these circles here, yeah. like three of them. And uh, didn't know what it was, but I went to the barbershop. Thank God the style was high top fades then. So nobody knew I disguised it. Then I started losing weight. I couldn't keep my weight up. Wow. And uh, there was a guy, Eric White from Pepperdine. He was on a 10 day, 10 day. And I was like, look, don't waste your money. You can, we're friends. You can come stay with me in my apartment. He was like, really? So he stayed in the other room. One night I was sweating profusely, couldn't eat. And maybe about two in the morning, he comes in the bathroom. I'm dripping sweat. My head is just laying on the side of the toilet. I couldn't throw up anymore. He's like, what's wrong? I said, I don't know. And we went to Daniel Freeman Hospital. And I got eight IVs that night. I was so dehydrated. Wow. And uh, then I called the NBA Players Union to get to tell them what happened. And they got me a psychiatrist. And they had eight sessions. After the third, third session, I said, I don't need to come anymore. I get it. I need to have a life outside of basketball. I need to socialize. I need to listen to music and I, I need to have a life. And um, because what I was doing, I would go home and just watch film and then play the next game, eat, go home and watch film. I was doing that all the time. And, and that's what happened. So when I hear guys talk about mental health today, I get it. But back then you couldn't even talk about that stuff. You had to do it in silence and just keep moving. And that's what yeah. I did. Well, now you I hated losing for the organization. Didn't like the the uh, management. It was just bad. We didn't know where we were practicing each time we went to practice. We get a call, oh, we're over in Chino Hills, over in Westwood. We didn't know where we were practicing from day to day. It was just. They had no facilities, Charles? No, our practice facilities, uh, the, the uh, 
We didn't have a practice in the arena. So we didn't have a practice facility. Uh, we were flying coach while all the other teams were flying on their own planes. Wow. Uh, we were still grabbing up all the first class seats, uh, flying commercial. I mean, and uh, so teams had advantages on us. We play a game, go back to the hotel, go to sleep. When the teams played the game, they were jumping on a plane going to the next city and getting a good night's rest or resting on the plane. We were getting up at five, four in the morning to catch the next flight to go play the next game. Yeah. That was a huge disadvantage. That is a huge disadvantage. As much as they travel in the NBA, oh my goodness, that's that's a yeah. huge no, disadvantage. We were the last team to, to get a plane and then we started sharing a plane with other teams. Now, Charles, you got, they appointed you a special, they created a new position with the players union if I understand it right. Mm -hmm. And you were very young in your career. Did, did some of this lead to that? Because it, it seems like that, that window of time, because you were like first or second or third year in the league, you had this assistant head position or something. Talk right. a little bit. It was a first vice president. First vice um, president. Yeah. So I was an entrepreneur since I had my paper route, first paper route at age 12. Um, I was a seasonal worker, pushed the lawnmower, go, Mow lawns, get paid, shovel snow, break leaves. So, and I, I, I worked in a department store, a grocery store. I was a stock boy at 15, 16. I always had jobs. So I always had a knack for business and making money outside of basketball. And when I got to the Clippers, my rookie year, nobody wanted to be the player rep. And I didn't know what the player rep was. So I asked some questions. The only thing I had to do is take the information from corporate, have a meeting with the players and tell them what's going on. I said, I could do that. So I did that. But then I began to take it to another level. I really wanted to know what was going on. So I would call the attorneys in the office and ask them questions. And they began to tell me more. And I was intrigued. And my second year, here I am in this meeting in Chicago, and we're talking about pension. Uh, we're talking about pension issues. And Bob Lanier and Isaiah Thomas are arguing, almost fighting, and David Falk walks in with all his superstars saying we're going this direction. And I'm sitting there like, what the heck is going on? You know, it was a big deal to me. I didn't have anything to say. Uh, Norm Nixon was sitting next to me, and he had a lot to say. And that was my kind of introduction my second year. But after that, Again, I wanted to learn why this meeting was so contentious. And I did begin to understand why. And uh, because of that interest and my desire to learn, uh, the head of the union at the time, Charlie Grantham, came into town, had lunch with me and said, hey, we think you'll be good for the union. Um, uh, we'd like to create a position for you um, called first vice president. And in that role, you would work under the president. And uh, the presidents were always like Hall of Famers. It was Isaiah, it was Patrick, and it was like guys who are all stars. And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't that, so they put me in that, that position. And uh, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. It helped me in my platform once I finished playing. Uh, I went through three collective bargaining agreements. I learned what 
you need to do when you caucus. I learned the stage performance with Stern and Grant. I mean, I learned so much that uh, it actually helped me. So that was my, uh, my introduction and my experience with the union. Fascinating. That is, I mean, that had to be invaluable experience, uh, you know, to actually in your entrepreneurship as you started to branch out after you got done playing, right? I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And my maturity level rose because, I, and, I, and I'll tell you this, I'm a young guy coming out of an urban market of, you know, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Yep. I'm in the NBA and I'm going to my first collective bargaining agreement. And some of the owners said the most stupid stuff. I mean, literally stuff like, you didn't know the capital of the bottom was Reno or, you know, just, they said some things like, I was baffled. But what happened was money doesn't make you smart. And I got caught up in that. And a lot of those guys were uneducated. Right. And they just got the teams from their wealth and their families. And for me, it leveled the playing field in my thought process. And that was big for me because I always looked at the owners because they made so much money that they were brilliant. Mm -hmm. But no, they're human beings just like me. Some just got lucky. Some worked their butts off. But uh, that was a big deal to me when I, when I realized that. That was huge. Well, your first owner is legendary racist. So how, how did you have any interactions with, with him on any of those levels? Oh Sterling? yeah. Oh yeah. He uh yeah, he was he was very uh I always say he was kind of eclectic, centric. He had a way about him that was just different. He was a different human being. Um we were playing the Miami Heat at home and if Miami Heat lost if we beat them they would have owned the longest losing streak in NBA history because the Clippers had it. not our year but prior right it's a big game and we, we lost to them by three oh. went to the locker room in our locker room there was an area before the locker room where VIPs and the owners and people hang out. So we had to walk through them. So we went to the locker room. Nobody wanted to come out, heads down. And I went out and I just walked through the crowd and was leaving. Then it caught myself and I was like, no, don't do that. Go back, shake the owner's hand, say something. So I went back. He was standing right in front of me. And I said, you know, Mr. Sterling, guys in there are hurt over the game. We Gave it our best shot. Before I can finish, Mr. Sterling, with my hand out, with all the people watching, he turned his back on me and folded his hands and started talking to somebody else. Wow. <laughs> Talk about a moment where you feel this big. Mm -hmm. Yep. I did not know what to do for about five seconds. People were looking at me. And... Some were embarrassed for me. Uh, so I ended up just, just walking out. And when I walked out, I said, when my time is up here, when my contract's done, I'm out. And that was it. Yeah. That was my catalyst. Wow. That, that's, you can't make that up. You just can't make that up. No. Yeah. 
you're doing the right thing. And then somebody, like you said, who you think, because he's the owner, has has it together. And really, he's a mess. Yeah. He's a mess of a of a human being. And he he, you know, the eclectic and eccentric, those are such polite ways to say he's a wacka job, you know. So, you know, it's it's unfortunate. So how did you how did the transition happen to get to the Knicks? Did you push that? Did how did that happen for you? Um so going to the Knicks, I actually went to them because they were making the higher off the highest offer at the time. Um, and they wanted to max me out, you know, the seven years. Mm-hmm. I looked at that as security. Mm-hmm. And some were offering five, some were offering four, but they pushed it to seven. And I was like, hmm. I already had one knee surgery. Feel good though, but you never know. So I ended up signing with the Knicks. Legitimate team. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people always ask me, who was your toughest opponent that you played against while you were in NBA? I say Pat Riley. <laughs> he was my toughest opponent. Your coach. <laughs> yeah, he was my toughest opponent. Yeah, that's well, great. that's the old adage, you know, the only guy that could stop Michael Jordan was Dean Smith, right? It's the same, same kind of deal, you know, with you. you so, um, so you went the Knicks. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was tough. Yeah. I mean, so now, so now you're with the Knicks and you were on some of those teams that were knocking on the door for, for big time, you know, getting into championships and playoffs and stuff. Talk about some of your runs through the playoffs with those guys. Now you got to play with Patrick instead of against them, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and some of the iconic uh, guys that were on those teams with you. Right. Yeah, we uh, we had a great team, uh, a great team. Um, you know, Rolando Blackman, Doc Rivers. Yeah. Uh, Derek Harper. Mace, right? Yeah, we have Mace. Oak. Mace. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Patrick and Anthony Bonner coming off the bench at times. Um, we just had a really solid, solid squad. And uh, old school, tough too. Our, they were a no nonsense club. You guys were man. Like you, what's that? You were. You guys were a no nonsense club. If if yeah, somebody well, got past the guard and got in the paint, he got knocked on his ass. Old school, yeah, tough, no, man. no, we were we were no nonsense, but so was so was Pat. Pat was one of the greatest coaches I've ever played with um, and played for where he understood the X's and O's very well. Um, I've, I've, I've met, I, I marveled at how we could, now we never lost three games. We lost three games in a row twice during that season, only two yeah. times. And I was amazed at how we would have an issue in our offense or our defense and we would come into practice and he would break that situation down in practice and have us all practice that situation over and over and over again in different groups and then bring it back into the offense. And he would walk around and if somebody was doing something wrong, the screen wasn't set perfectly at the angle, they weren't high enough. And we were working in tandems of three and and he would just bring it back in and then boom, we had it. 
and he would do that a lot. And uh, so he was a he was just a, he was a phenomenal coach, great coach to play for, um, phenomenal coach. Charles, the, do you think he was better at the X's and O's part of it, or about the intangible part of getting guys and all the egos and, and on a pro team of all playing collectively as one? What do you think he was was his strength? The X's and O's. Um, he was a good motivator. Um, but here's my issue that still exists today. Coaches should be more in tune with the players, like CEOs are in tune with the top tier people that they're working with. Um, effective communication is not in sports as much as it is in corporate. So here's what I'm saying. I played four years with Danny Manning. We never even went to a lunch or breakfast, hung out or had a drink together in four years. Wow. It's not that I didn't like him or he didn't like me. It just didn't happen. <clears throat> and I didn't realize that till later, you know, he hung out with his Cooper guys. I had mine, but the top two players on the team never get together. In four years, the they, coaches they, should have made us get together. They and, get, and they don't pay attention to that. Yeah. You know, yeah. They don't pay attention to that. You know, the European guys that come into the league, they struggle. The coaches don't pay attention to their struggle, and that can be the difference between wins and losses. Yep. So there's all of that, and I can go on and on, but that's the one thing that I look back at on, on my teams, the coaches. Now, Pat did some things that were great. If he knew we were struggling as a team and we're getting ready to go to practice, he would divert the bus and go to a movie theater and we watch a movie. Right. Before we went to go play Utah Jazz, we had lost our third game in a row and we are not losing four. He diverted the plane in the air. We went to Reno instead of Utah. Guys gambled, just blew it out. Stayed up late, just blew it out. Got to Utah because we had a day up day. We didn't even practice. We just did the walkthrough and we beat them. So, yeah. you know, there's those things. He's a great motivator. There was the things that he would do and do them at the right time. And then there were times where he can get on your last nerve trying to motivate you, you know, uh, and, and it actually turned negative. So, you know, but you got that, you know, nobody's perfect. Right. You know, it's funny because we've had guys on, uh, coaches and, uh, and Trangisi and people like that. And they, they speak the way you just did about Dave Gabbett and all, and how he was a master motivator that way. You know, I don't even know if you know stuff like this, like, um, they sent guys on those big East trips just so they would get along, you know, those big East travel teams. If, if two coaches were at each other's throat in the, uh, in the um, big East coaches meetings, those two guys, the next day when they played golf, were in the same golf cart, their bags were already in the same golf cart. You know, the, 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 um, the luncheons that we had at the big East tournament was specifically done for that reason, where you had two guys from each team sitting around the table. So you can, we can get to know guys from Pitt or from St. John's or wherever, 
And, and besides just the fact of us going like this on the court, you got to know them as a person. And uh, it, it made and it made for, you know, the way it is now, the, you know, you know, I haven't seen you in years, but it's like I saw you yesterday when I spoke to you on the phone the other day. You know what I mean? Right. It was one of the, it's one of those things. It's like that for anybody. If you uh, pick up the phone and talk to anybody in this league and that's all due to the similar. What this, this, show, this show wouldn't exist if that culture wasn't fostered. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So, so who were some of the guys, Charles, that fostered your entrepreneurial um, mentality? Who helped you with some of that stuff? Because, you know, you hear the horror stories, and I know you were involved with this, so I'm kind of leading into this, okay? You hear some of the horror stories about guys that struggle when they retire from the game financially and stuff, guys that, you know, aren't careful with their money, aren't, don't take care of what they have to take care of, get a little crazy with stuff. And I know you developed a non-for-profit um, to help out retired uh, players. Who were some of the guys that that got you that that entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial, um, you know, mentality that you that you came across? Besides the shoveling of driveways and raking leaves, you know, I did well, that too, but I didn't get to step up like you did. Right. Well, you know, my it was all about creating solutions for myself. That's, that's really what it was all about. Um, so an example would be my first year in the NBA. Um, I'm with ProServe. I'm just coming off the Olympics and I'm in LA. I have no endorsements, zero. And I'm like, how is this possible? Because they were focused on Patrick, James Worthy, Michael Jordan, and all these others. I was yeah. just one of the fish in the bowl. Um, and I was a guppy. So compared to them. Right. So I go to a golf tournament. I meet the um, president of ITT Sheridan, which was out of Orange County in California. And we're talking. And he says, uh, I said to him, I said, you know, I enjoyed talking to him by the end. I said, you know, if you need me for anything, let me, uh, let me know. I'll do appearances. I'll, you know, come down, love talking to you, like to establish uh, some type of rapport with you. He's like, what? No, I love that. Well, give me your agent's number. I said, no, don't worry about that. Just deal with me. He says, really? Like, yeah. So um, I went to an appearance in Orange County. He paid me. And then I thought about it. I'm like, well, is there anybody else? You want me to get any other players on the team to come out? He's like, sure. I, I had another player come out, but I wasn't smart enough to get a commission. I just kind of hooked them up. But then it hit me. Why don't you start your own marketing company for yourself? You're in LA, you're a top player. So I grabbed two guys, started a marketing firm in LA. I called it Fluid Marketing. And I started representing myself. But the difference was I went to the meetings with my representatives. So deals were happening quicker. They weren't talking about me. I was there speaking for myself. Yeah, right. So we ended up having an anchor client of ITT Sheridan, uh, Sears and Roebuck. So it expanded. I would go to my shoot arounds with the opponents that were playing. I'd know in advance and I'd say, hey, um, you're going to this city next. We can have a limo pick you up 
and you do an appearance at Sears and Roebuck, be about an hour, sign some autographs, pay you $5,000. They're like, oh yeah, I'll do that. So I started doing it all over the league and my company was profitable. Wow. And um, then I started doing it with football players. I, we represented uh, Bruce Smith from the Buffalo Bills. Sure, yeah. And then we started doing yeah. events. My God. Started doing events around the city and it just grew, right? I leave and I'll, I'll end the story so it's not too long. I started working with, um, um, oh man, I can't think of her name, who was head of marketing with the Clippers. I can see her face. But anyway, I go to, we started working together and I, be, I probably became the highest paid player doing appearances off the floor because I worked directly with the head of marketing and I help her close deals. If she wanted a player to come and talk about season tickets and all that, I was right there. So she took care of me. Mm -hmm. So I go to New York. I sign. I go right to the office of head of marketing. Her name was Pam. I walk in the office and I say, hey, Pam, Charles Smith. She's like, I know who you are. I'm like, yeah, I just wanted to meet you. And, and I didn't have a lot of business acumen, so I run right in. Yeah, I want to help you with sponsorship and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. She's looking around like it's a joke. She's baffled. And she's like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. We don't, we don't do that here. And I went out. Time and time again, I talked to her when I see her. No, no, she just avoided me. And then I said, the woman's name in the Clippers. I said, you know, head of marketing Clippers? She tells me, yeah. I said, can you call her and ask her about me? Then, boom, she started working with me. I was helping her out. Then I did a deal with the Seabacks, with the uh, Knicks, or yeah. with Perry Ellis. I did that deal with the CEO. I did the deal with Nobody Beats the Wiz for all of our guys to do the first commercial with everybody. Yep, yep. Now I was in New that. York with my marketing firm making money. And uh, I just continued. And uh, that was kind of what I was doing while I was playing. I even did a player's contract while I was playing. I did Eric Mobley, um, but I had an agent front for it, and we split the commission. Wow. Um, so I did a lot of that stuff behind the scenes because I knew the union. Um, I, I knew how the, the, I knew the documents and what we can and cannot do as players. So I read the areas where I could take advantage of it. And uh, I had national televised events on TV with players. I was just... That was what I did while I played. Wow. I mean, it just seems like common sense, Charles, the way you explained it. You know, you're sitting in the meetings instead of them talking about, you know, let me get to Charles and I'll get back to you. Charles is sitting there, you know, and making the decisions for himself right there. That's that's genius. I mean, I that's, you know, you don't hear about guys doing yeah, things Yeah, like and that. that wasn't done back then. So It's um, not done now, Charles. Who does that yeah. now? Yeah, especially you know? Los Angeles, right? Have your guy call my guy you know? Yeah, right. right. Exactly. Yeah. I took advantage of that, man. And it was, it was an education for me. Uh, during the riots, we did a huge concert with like Stevie Wonder, uh, a house full of toys every Christmas. I was oh, doing wow. a lot and um, I enjoyed it, but that was, uh, I did a lot of that stuff. And then I started knocking on the league's door, doing some things that I didn't realize I was impacted. Like, for example, I had a nationally televised. You remember the Battle of the Basketball Stars? Sure. 
Yeah. Okay. So I did the battle of the, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the battle of the network stars. Network stars. Yeah. yeah. I did the battle of the basketball stars okay. and had 16 players. We did the hundred yard dash. We lift weights. Who was the strongest? We did all these obstacle course, all this kind of stuff. And uh, it was nationally televised on ESPN too. The league got wind of it. And then that following summer, a rule came down from the board of governors. There cannot be any events unless they're sanctioned by your team. And anytime three or more players are gathered, it needs to be sanctioned and you need to check with your team. So that killed my event. And yeah. I kept doing things like that. And next thing, the next summer it was gone. So um, I enjoyed it, Chuck. You know, so when you talked about when you were in L.A. with the Clippers, you know, and and going to the psychologist and you went to three sessions, you said about you needed to have a life and do stuff outside of basketball. You took that dead serious. serious. <laughs> look at all the stuff you did, man, outside of hoops while you were playing. I mean, that's impressive in itself, running a business like that. And and playing basketball, and because you still had to watch game film, I know that you were overwatching, you know, but you still had to watch game film and still had to keep. I mean, that was your main gig was was playing. You know, it turned into, um, you know, your main gig, I guess, after you retired and stuff. You know, but what you know, a, what a I, great I was what a great thing, Charles. I was fortunate enough to hire good people. Evan Morgenstein worked for me. After I left and went to New York, we still did some things together. But today he became, uh, he represented Michael Phelps. He sure. became the biggest representative in swimming. Uh, now he's an influencer marketing, social media. And it started with us. And we still keep in wow. touch today. Um, and there was some other guys, Rick Nurse and other guys that worked for me back then, Rick Bratman. And they're all doing great today. They're all heading up companies. and um, But it was fun while it. Well, last and I learned a lot from them. You talk about taking lemons and making lemonade, Charles. I mean, you're going through what you went through where you had alopecia and you're and you're sick and you're, you know, you're dehydrated, and all of a sudden now you you go you go seek help and and now you take it to a level that you took it to. That's very, very impressive. Hats off to you, man. That's awesome. Yeah, but I, I wasn't one that hung out all the time. Um yeah, obviously you can't you can't do that. Yeah, and do so I I was uh, I, I had those two things going on and I I enjoyed it. So yeah. it, it was good, they, and I had some great mentors after I finished playing. They talk about life after basketball. This is life during basketball. During basketball, yeah, and I couldn't talk about it. Hey, look, I remember when Donald Sterling walked on the plane. I was reading the Wall Street Journal. Oh yeah, no, 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 this is no joke. I'm reading the Wall Street Journal. He comes walking on the plane. He stops in front of me and says, what do you know about reading that? Yeah. And I just looked at him baffled. And then he kept walking. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Just unbelievable. I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine being in that situation in your shoes. Just that's, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. Talk, so talk about it. Go ahead, son. Charles, what do you got? What are you doing now? What what's keeping you busy these days? Well, currently today, I formed a partnership with a 30-year company called Piercing. And um, uh, the company helps corporations generate 
from revenue and increase their bottom line through effective communication. Uh, they also speak to companies about the challenges of not having a strong culture and how it hurts the bottom line as well, working in silos and all that. So once I got to understand the company and I was trained to be a facilitator, um, you know, I did the public school system in Virginia. I facilitated and co-facilitated meetings. Um, I saw an opportunity for sports and entertainment. And I went to the CEO and said, why don't we start a division in sports? And he said, well, what do you mean? And I went through the content that I learned and I said, this is missing in sports. And it really came down to this. How can a corporation not be able to build a dynasty like sports? And how could sports not have effective communication like corporations? And I go through this whole thing about it. And, uh, you know, one thing you know, Chuck and Sonny, film doesn't lie. And when you're playing sports, you're always recording. So I would say, imagine the CEO was recorded all the time in his meetings and what he did every day. Right. You know, where's accountability in sports? Accountability is way up here. You know, it's paramount. In corporate, accountability is like, so I, that's, that's it. So I do that. And then I continue to do conferences for athletes, entertainers, and in family offices. Um, and my next conference is in Dubai, um, December 10th through the 13th. Um, I've been doing that for a while, been doing it since 2011. I started with doing two a year, one at NASDAQ or, or uh, New York Stock Exchange in New York. And then I did the other at the Venetian in Vegas. It grew, cut some deals with athletes at these conferences. And then I merged with another gentleman and it just took off because he did a lot of stuff internationally. So uh, it's, a, it's a great concept, it works, it's very intimate. So that's something that I do as, as well as I work for uh, Fearsing. Do you still do stuff with the retired players as well, Charles? All the time, as much? Yeah. all the time. But you know what, it's, uh, it's not a monetary thing for me anymore right. because I, I focus on the players transitioning. A player can call me today and tell me about everything he's going through. I can decipher it and put him on an economic track. And then it, what he wants to do in the future, even if he's five, 10 years retired, I can take that on what he wants to do if it makes sense. And I can give him a strategy and back it out and say, follow this. I'll help you periodically call me and you'll get there. But I learned that because I went from technology of developing patents that I licensed out to HP and uh, North Plains and Stats Inc. because I was in the tech space when I first came out and Major League Baseball was my client. So I went from entrepreneurship to um, working as the executive director for the NBA Players Union, and then being a regional director for the NBA Players Union. And then, I, and then I went corporate. David Stern, bless his soul, had lunch with them. 
And he said, Charles, if you want to make it to the very top as an athlete, get corporate experience. Because at the end of the day, they're always going to say, he has no corporate experience. Right. So I worked five years for the largest media company in the world, WPP Group M. From Midas Exchange, I rose to head of business development, and I started a new division, a social media division for Mediacom. And uh, they represent 130 brands worldwide. And I wrote a white paper after a year being there, and um, they're still moving forward with it. I got furloughed uh, during the pandemic. And they said they bring me back, but I didn't wait around. That's why I'm at Pierce. But um, if I didn't have all those experiences, I couldn't work with an athlete quickly in the way I do. Um, yeah. A lot of people are trying to get this transition down, but they're missing the mark. Um, yeah, it's, no it's a it's an arduous, tumultuous process to go from a professional athlete to work for a corporation and serve a CEO and serve a chief revenue officer on a daily basis and comply to their needs and make sure I'm doing the things that they need for me to get done at the deadlines that need to be met. For an athlete to do that, that's that's tough. And I'm not patting myself on, a, on the back because no, I, I get went it. through a lot. Yeah. I went through a lot to try yeah. to get there and do that. I, I mean, I, I cried. I couldn't understand. I didn't understand corporate culture. You know, and it was so tough for me because I can look at my opponent, lace them up. And at the end of the night, I know whether I beat you or not. In corporate culture, somebody, people would stab me in my back. Oh, and, yeah. Well, who said that? And I don't know who it is. And it could be the guy sitting next to me at lunch laughing and having a great time. Yep. Mm -hmm. I had to learn how to navigate those waters, man. And it was, I didn't want to lose my job. I had to get mentors. And it was tough. It was, it was tough. Tough to the point where I have my corporate experience for five years. I'm in corporate now, but in a different capacity. I don't know whether I want that anymore. Yeah. I don't no grass grows it. under your feet, though, man. No grass and no opportunity gets missed. I mean, I this try. is an education. Yeah, you can, you can hear it, man. You can, you can comes right well, out. I, I got to tell you, Charles, in the 40-some episodes that we've done of this show, this by far was one of the best conversations Sonny and I have ever had. I mean... With a, with a pro athlete and one of the guys that were a Big East brother, if you will. And, uh, oh, for real. Man, it was, it was, it was, it was great. So we really appreciate you coming out and joining us and spending some time with us today on the Big East Rewind. Really yeah, appreciate I, your time. I didn't even and and have, have a newfound, not that I didn't respect you before, because I did as a player, but man, you, you I, I didn't realize how deep you really were, man. It was really cool talking to you. So thank yeah, you. I appreciate it. And I, I pretty much stay quiet with what I do and move forward. And that's a, I guess that's a problem of mine because I don't put it out there and I don't control my narrative. I just let stuff go, which is not good, but I enjoyed being on the show. You guys got a great show. This was nostalgic. I loved it. And out of all the podcasts I've done this year, this was the best because it was emotional. I felt it. Yeah. And the conversations we we had were heartfelt. So thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Didn't yeah, know well, I have well, such a great time. appreciate you, man. You know, let me tell you, being amongst the two big guys today, <laughs> again, all right. All right, I'm okay now. All right, thank you. <laughs> Charles, <laughs> right. 
You said you hey, made me feel better. Keep Thank it you. going, Listen, Charles. Keep Charles, it going. Proved, the big guys aren't so dumb, you know, Sonny. I'm telling you, <laughs> know, all these point guards get the head coaching. Man, jobs, let's get Curtis. Let's get Michael. Listen to Charles. No, you know, man. yeah, we got to support Patrick, man. We got to support. It. That's it. You've been oh listening to the Big East Rewind with Chuck Emerson and Sonny Sparrow. The Big East Rewind is produced and directed by Daryl Gurney and Nick Chico Corvus. And you could reach us on uh, bigeastrewind.gmail.com if you have any comments or suggestions for the show. And of course, on YouTube, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks a lot for joining us and have a great night.